Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 15th, 2010. This week, episode 183 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe, TGIF, another episode <laughs> of IQ Radio. Five Fridays in October. All right. Uh, at the controls again this week is our engineer. Allow myself to introduce myself. My name is Austin Danger Powers. Danger's my middle name. Austin Powers Novak. Thank you, Austin. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Don Weeks. Uh, we'll have a halftime with an interesting What's News segment with Glenn Fellman and an open microphone for the second half with our guest, Don Weeks. Glenn Fellman, Dr. Dietrich Wah will be joining us, and we'll have some lines available for listeners that would like to call in. I'll give more details on that at halftime. We have been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Most people know how to contact the show. You go to the iaqradio.com website and uh, follow the link that says go to the show. You can also directly connect from the announcement we send out. We can also download the show later from the website or, of course, from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, and I'll send back information on how to get those renewal credits. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia quiz question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, go ahead and text it in. Congratulations. Go out to Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products in Mars, Pennsylvania, for answering last week's trivia question by being the first person to correctly identify anosmia as the medical malady of loss of the sense of smell. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 15, 2010, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Cochrane & Associates has created IEQ TV, the IEQ Video Network, the industry's portal for news and information related to indoor air quality issues. IEQ TV is the place to be. Visit them at IEQTV.com. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the practice of creating and using healthier and more resource-efficient models of construction, renovation, operation, maintenance, and demolition. Now back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Let's get the introduction for this week's guest. Most of you know Don. Don Weeks is the in-air environmental certified industrial hygienist. He has been providing environmental and occupational health and safety assistance for more than 35 years. He has a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science from Ramapo College in New Jersey and a Master's in Occupational Safety and Health from New York University. He's a partner in In-Air Environmental in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He's affiliated with the American Industrial Hygiene Association as past chair of the Indoor Environmental Quality Committee and as a fellow of the association. He's also the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers as a current treasurer of the Ottawa River Chapter, current treasurer of the Indoor Air Quality Association, and also a member of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, a past vice president for practice of that organization, a four-time recipient of AIHA's Bestseller Award for the Report on Microbial Task Force in 2001 and 2002, assessment, remediation, and post-remediation verification of mold in buildings in 2004, and the Green Book, also known as Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold in 2008. And he is currently the technical co-chair for practice for the upcoming Indoor Air 2011 in Austin, Texas. That will be June 5th through the 10th, 2011. Hope to see a lot of our listeners there. We have some intro music. So what happened to bulletproof weeks in your arms? What happened to feeling cheap radio songs? What happened to thinking that the world's flat? Yeah, what happens? Yeah, what happens to others? What, what happened to Bulletproof Weeks? I, I can't believe we found that, but I, we've got them right here. That's what happened to Bulletproof Dawn Weeks. Hello, Dawn. Are you on the line? Well, we got to unmute Dawn. There he is. Hello, Dawn. 
Hello, Joe and Cliff. How are you today? Bullet, good, bulletproof good. Weeks. We've got a new name for you, Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if that actually plans out after this conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. It's great to have you back. Um, you know, Cliff wrote a blog after our show with Ed Light. Um, the first half of this show, part of this show, was is the industry approach to IAQ mold and green building science-based and um, we asked you to come on and go over some of the key points that Cliff, you know, put together from the show, included in his blog, and then get your opinion on uh, some of the answers that, you know, at least as Cliff saw them, that um, Ed had brought up on his segment of the show. But before we start, I want to uh, ask you, you know, you and Ed are both certified industrial hygienists, and um, is industrial hygiene an art or a science? Well, actually, yeah, according to the American Industrial Hygiene Association, it's both a science and an art. In their definition of what an industrial hygienist is, which is on their website, they say that industrial hygiene is a science and an art devoted to the anticipation, recognition, evaluation, and prevention of control of, uh, of environmental factors that are stresses arising in or from the workplace may cause sickness, impaired health, and well-being. So in actual fact, we have a... a um, Industrial hygiene, if it was just the science, would be really focused in on the numbers that we, we get from when we collect samples. And those are certainly important. And it's certainly if we mean by science-based that we are collecting samples, certainly that is a large part of what we do. However, the real art of industrial hygiene is being able to take that information that we collect through the sampling we do and interpret it in, in, in the basis of, of the type of environment in which we find ourselves. And we do that by basically talking to the people who are actually living in that environment or are working in that environment. We also do it by doing questionnaires. We do it by, by, by looking at the uh, other factors that might affect an individual in, in an environment. And then we interpret the results of the sampling that we do, the science-based part of our, our uh, profession, to determine what exactly needs to be done to prevent or to uh, enhance the uh, indoor air quality to take that is uh, in that environment. So really, industrial hygiene, if it was strictly a science, would not necessarily be as effective. If it's just strictly an art, it wouldn't be effective either. It needs to have both, the science and the art, in order to be a, a, a very effective profession. All right. Well, Cliff, do you want to um, sure. review one of sure. your nuggets of information from last week and get Don to comment on it? Sure. Uh, you know, from the blog, you know, one of the things that I said was that indoor environmental issues are not new. They've occurred down throughout history, you know, for hundreds of years. You know, what's new is the growth of an industry to deal with it, uh, is, is what Ed said. And can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I agree that uh, environmental issues, indoor environmental issues are not new. I mean, we have, uh, and I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners and yourselves have, have, have uh, heard presentations where people have, have, have uh, quoted from the Bible, I believe it's Isaiah, which talks Leviticus. about... Uh, Leviticus, there you go, I'm sorry. And Leviticus that talks about the, uh, uh, the problems that they had with, uh, with what would appear to be mold and the, and the, and the way in which they handled that back more than 2,000 years ago. And it is, so it's not new, and it, it certainly has occurred throughout history. What is new uh, is that the living environments in which we, we now place ourselves. If you think back, uh, and I think everyone on the, uh, at least the three of us at least, and they probably need to remember back 
uh, more than uh, 30, 40 years ago when we were growing up, uh, many of our homes were, um, were made out of plaster walls. Uh, we had lead paint on those walls. We had asbestos on our, on our pipes. Uh, many of our floor tiles were made out of asbestos. Our ceilings were made out of asbestos. We had stipple paint that, on, the, on the ceilings that was asbestos. We had an environment, basically, which was not very conducive to mold growth. So what happened was we changed all that. We went to wallboard. We took the, uh, the asbestos out of the pipe insulation, put paper on it. We, put, we took the final floor tile and took asbestos out of it, and we put wall-based, uh, water-based uh, mastic underneath it. We put water-based paint on the, on the walls. And now we have basically a, in a perfect environment for indoor air quality problems because we've now invited in uh, particularly mold into these environments where they were where it was uh, inhospitable years ago. Now we basically have an environment where they you know they feel like we we've we've uh, made them their you know an honored guest in in our houses by 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 bringing in all this type of material. So indoor air quality can change over the time. It can it can it certainly the types of environments in which we live and work change over time. What we have developed in terms of an industry is a way in which to address that. It's not necessarily true that only industrial hygienists can deal with, with indoor air quality. Uh, there are certainly other professions that can, including engineers, and including many of the new uh, professionals who are now dealing specifically with aspects of indoor air quality, whether it be mold or indoor air quality itself or, or corrosive drywall, things of that nature. So the industry, yes, has grown up. I'm not afraid of, of, of competition. I, I welcome all the new people who are coming into the field, and I'm hoping that they all look to eventually become, uh, you know, certified as industrial hygienists or, or some other certification, so that they can prove their professional qualifi- uh, qualifications credentials. Another, um, well, you know, before we go on, let me let me quickly. Do you think maybe the industry grew too fast on? Absolutely. Yeah, I think any industry uh, that uh, that starts out on the basis of a lawsuit, which is the uh, we had a guest two 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 uh, shows ago, Melinda Ballard, uh, where uh, individuals uh, thought that they were going to have an enormous increase in their in their in their rate of pay if they got into mold. Uh, you know, she won a, a lawsuit for thirty-two million dollars. You know, ten years ago. I think an industry that grew too fast uh, can have an unfortunate uh, uh, number of individuals who are not qualified to work in this industry, uh, and that that is one of the reasons why you you know an industry like this needs to sort itself out over time. Um, and this is the this is like the fourth wave of this of this type of, of situation. You had it with the asbestos industry in the in the 80s. You had it with lead paint in the early 90s. You had it with radon in the mid 90s, and then you had it with mold in the early 2000s. Each time, you had a, a, a number of people who came into this industry who were both those who were very, very much qualified and those who were not qualified. As time went on, those who were unqualified got out of the industry, and those who were qualified stayed in this industry and made it into what it is today. All right, another point that Cliff picked up from the previous show was that uh, mold is not a hazardous material. Do you have any disagreement with that, or would you word that differently? I think I might word it differently, um, and it, it really becomes a, a, a definition uh, difference. Uh, I'm, you know, in the Green Book, uh, there was a, a quote uh, that was taken by uh, taken, uh, 
to deal with this particular issue. And it, it is that um, when people talk about toxic effects, they have to look at the full range of adverse effects that are associated with exposure. And one of the things that they say is that no distinction is made here, nor is it typically made, between irritative effects and toxic effects, as no such distinction exists in toxicology. So you know that there are going to be irritative effects with, with mold. I think that even Ed, in, in his, uh, when he was talking about it, said that. Well, in toxicology, there's no difference between those two. And your irritative effects and toxic effects are considered to be the same. They're, they're associated as adverse effects associated with exposure. So really, when you're talking about this, when you say hazardous, I think the words should be used that these are, are, are effects, adverse effects that, that occur with mold exposure. And if, since toxicologists are not making the distinction, I don't think we as industrial hygienists are making the distinction. All right. Cliff, do you want to take the next one? Sure, sure. Um, when we were discussing it with Ed, he had this uh, classification of normal people and, and sensitive people and that indoor air quality only affects people that are sensitive. Um, you know, can you comment on that? Yes, and I think the, the, the problem with that is that when I come into a, a, a situation involving an indoor quality investigation, um, there's nobody who uh, has a, a, a you know, sensitive stamped on their forehead. Uh, I have to basically go in there with the idea that everybody might be sensitive in that sense. It's very difficult to know who is the sensitive folks. It's very difficult to know who's going to be affected by a particular situation. And also because people are, are, are changing over a period of time, their physiology changes over a period of time, they may have been non-sensitive or whatever you want to call the term, non-susceptible when they were younger, and as we age, become more susceptible. So when exactly, how do we, def I don't have a, 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 uh, a meter that actually allows me to pick out the sensitive folks. So what I have to do, and then when I do an investigation, is look at what is the uh, what is the situation as it's described to me by the individuals that are there. That's the art of industrial hygiene. You can't just go in and measure sensitivity. I have to go in and basically look at the situation as it exists and determine exactly what I have to do in order to improve the environment for all people. You know, I, I think that you know a, a valid point that Ed brought out is. You know, worst-case scenarios do pose a hazard. And we oftentimes see unrelated health effects. You have psychosocial, you have political reasons, which also need to be considered. And I think in many situations there aren't. You know, someone says they're sensitive, we find high levels of mold in the building, and then we start jumping, you know, to these conclusions that, you know, one and one equals two, and the mold is causing this reaction. So could you comment on unrelated factors and, and whether you consider them and how and, you know, psychosocial and political matters? I believe they do. I, and I think, again, that, that goes back to, to the, the, the uh, use of the art of industrial hygiene and, and, and not just relying on the science. And you're right, people do make leaps from, from, from uh, individuals who are claiming to be sensitive or having adverse health effects and the fact that there may be mold in a particular building. 
uh, that may not necessarily be the relation why that individual is, 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 is sensitive or that individual has adverse health effects. So you have to take that into account and you have to look at those, those factors. Uh, and that's what you, can, you can't go in there. The, the last thing you do in an indoor air quality investigation is sample. The first thing you do is you do a walkthrough and then you basically look and see and talk to people about what's going on. The most powerful instrument that I can take into a, a, a uh, indoor air quality investigation is a high-powered flashlight. Uh, I carry that with me all the time simply so I can look into the dark, uh, dank, dirty spots that, that things may be hiding in. Uh, so you need to talk to people about what's going on in the, in the, in the uh, office. Is, it, is, is there a problem with the boss? Is, is there a, a, uh, issues with regards to... Uh, um, you know, uh, a union. Is there is there um, unrelated health effects that are occurring? I remember once I was told by an individual that uh, that uh, the ringing in his in his ears was related to mold exposure. Well, that may not, that kind of startled me a little bit, and I said, "Well, okay, let's talk about that. Can you give me an idea of what you were doing prior to you coming into the office today?" He says, "Well, I was out at the shooting range having some practice." I said, "Well, do you think it might possibly be related to that as opposed to mold exposure?" <laughs> said, "Well, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, okay. Well, that's you know that's why you have to talk to people to figure out what's going on before you get jump to conclusions." The last thing you do is you do the sampling after you've figured out everything else that's going on in a facility, and then you determine whether or not you need to have the sampling done and where it should be done. You know, Don, I think um, one of the biggest issues that uh, a lot of people have is is the mold issue, and I just want to um, put out a statement that Ed made. Now, I'm just curious, do you agree or not, that the silent majority feels that mold isn't a big deal? Well, of course, the silent majority means that they don't necessarily say anything. <laughs> and it's very hard for me to measure something that they don't say. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, we do hear from the, the individuals that do have adverse health effects. We don't necessarily hear from the folks that are basically, you know, feeling well. Um, and so, yes, there, there are probably a great number of individuals that do not have uh, any reaction to mold. However, uh, there are a sizable uh, minority to do, and those individuals are the ones that we do focus in on and we have to address. In, in today's society, we can't necessarily ignore the silent, uh, the, uh, the noisy minority. We have to basically deal with them both from a, a legal and a, a, um, and a, a uh, industrial hygiene viewpoint. Legally, you know, the, the Americans uh, Disabilities Act requires that we accommodate folks, and that's very similar to what we do here in Canada as well. There's also an act to that effect. So individuals who are noisy and having issues do need to be addressed. From an industrial hygiene viewpoint, you have to address that because they may be the, uh, the, the proverbial uh, canary in the, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, mine. Uh, they may be the first individuals to react. It doesn't mean that those other individuals that are not reacting right now may not have reactions later on. So addressing things early usually is a better way of handling these issues. You may not be complaining now, but you may be complaining down the road. All right. Cliff? Um, Ed made a statement that many building assessments are flawed because the building investigation is too often driven by a microbiological approach rather than a moisture-based approach. You know, would you agree or disagree with that statement? 
Um, I'm going to agree. Uh, basically, I think that many of the approaches are focused too much on measurements. Uh, as I mentioned before, the last thing you want to do is take more measurements for mold <laughs> after you've done an evaluation of the building. So your best bet is to look for the moisture. That's where I, again, come with my high-powered flashlight and look at every place where you may have leakage of pipes, you may have water seepage uh, under walls, things of that nature. So a, a moisture uh, approach, moisture-based approach, is the better way to go. In the long run, you're going to have to solve the moisture problem anyway, because if you don't solve it, you're going to have, again, another uh, mold problem. And uh, you don't want to basically go back to a building twice. You want to solve the problem the first time through. So if you solve the moisture problem, you're much more likely to solve the mold problem in the long run. Dawn, I I get somewhat frustrated with this issue at times, but let me uh, let me try and, and and explain my frustration. I think you know I understand Ed's concerns, and I do agree with you that many building assessments are flawed. Although I I think most of the people who are doing uh, indoor air quality investigations understand to do a moisture assessment. I think there's some uh, confusion between the people who are doing an actual indoor air quality investigation that includes a moisture investigation and home inspectors, for instance, who are just doing a property transfer type investigation where they're doing a very cursory look over of a building and they may have been sold on taking a few samples as a part of that. But um, I just don't see the masses within the indoor air quality industry going out and just taking a few samples and then walking away and saying, you know, based on my samples, you have this problem or that problem, or you don't have this problem or that problem. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that that has changed. I think, uh, I think that was one of the things we talked about when you said, well, has the, has the industry grown too fast? I think many of the individuals that started out in this field in the, the early 2000s uh, may have had a more of an approach from a microbiology viewpoint because, quite frankly, mold was, where, you know, as, as we've all heard, mold was gold in those days. So they took that approach because of that. But I do think that the individuals that are now in the field, the ones that have been winnowed out, uh, you know, have gone on to you know, some other uh, venture in their lives, maybe corrosive drywall or something, uh, you know, I have arachnophobia, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, basically, if you, if, and, and those, hopefully some insiders get what that is about. But basically, the whole idea here is that you, you're, you're in a position where uh, individuals are now getting to understand what indoor air quality involves. It's a complex investigation. So I agree with you that more and more people are taking that approach. I don't necessarily think that the, that all of the one the, the the sampling that was done previously was flawed, but I do think the approach may have been flawed in the sense that you're looking at what is it that that is the result of the moisture uh, you know uh, intrusion rather than basically why, how can we solve the moisture intrusion? I think that approach is a better way of basically handling most of the problems that are out there. Okay. Um... We see a lot of reports that come back from the testing lab after the sampling, and oftentimes these reports will include a list of organisms. And next to the list of organisms, um, there will be certain types of health effects and hazards attributed to those organisms. Um, do you feel that um, having this health information is appropriate in a report 
provided by a mold sampling lab that experiences in microbiology, not in medicine. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's appropriate. Um, I think that laboratories should stick to what they do best, which is to do the analysis of the samples and come back with a very thorough and uh, a report on what exactly they found on the sample. If you leave the health effects uh, information to either the occupational medicine or the uh, physician that is treating these individuals, as an industrial hygienist, we're the bridge between that. Uh, we certainly know some health effects because we've, we've worked with, uh, with individuals that have these health effects, and we've also, in many cases, worked with physicians that describe these effects. But the laboratories themselves have not done that, and they haven't been out to the location, so they don't even know what the circumstances were in which this test was taken and what might be the issues with regards to a particular building. So they should stay, in my opinion at least, very much away from making those types of statements and putting any type of health effects in, into the report. Don, let me, let me follow up on that a little bit. Now, in my experience, and I, I, you know, I deal with a lot of people in the industry, 90 to 98% or 99% of the laboratories out there do not include that information in their reports. It appears to be a very small group that has a maybe a disproportionate amount of a certain segment of our industry that includes that information in their reports. Would that be your experience as well, or do you feel this is more prevalent than I realize out there? Well, I, I think I think you're right that 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 uh, it's not it's about ninety percent of the laboratories that do not provide that kind of information. Unfortunately, the 10% that's remaining probably have a somewhat disproportionate percentage of the overall samples that are collected coming to their laboratories so that you're in a position. And also, unfortunately, the laboratories that do provide that kind of information also tend to get samples from, uh, from individuals uh, taking the test that may or may not necessarily be capable of interpreting the data. So you're in a position where the blind are leading the blind. Uh, the individual taking the test may not necessarily know what the, resu- what the results mean, plus the laboratory, since they have never been out in the field looking at this particular location, are giving information that may not necessarily be applicable to this particular lo- location. So it's kind of a reinforcement of, 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 of bad habits all the way around. For the laboratories that don't get that kind of information, it tends to be with individuals who already have a good idea of exactly what they're looking for and what it is that they're going to do with the data. So, for example, the laboratory I use here in, in Ottawa, we have a good relationship back and forth. If I have a question, I can call the microbiologist there and we can talk about it, but they don't provide me with any health information because they expect that me, as the industrial hygienist, will, will, will provide that information to my client and will have a better handle on exactly what kind of uh, adverse health effects are taking place at the facility that I'm, I'm visiting. So. I agree with what you're saying, but I do think that there is, a, a, unfortunately, a, a segment of the, of the uh, laboratories and, unfortunately, of the samplers who are, who are, who are misleading uh, themselves that they're, they're actually providing uh, helpful information to the uh, individuals affected by the problem. Okay, let's get one more in here before we go to halftime, Cliff. Yeah, uh, Don, uh, Ed Late made a, an observation that many building problems are obvious, routine, and resolvable by building owners and managers without the need for complex and expensive samplings and evaluations. Uh, could you comment on his observation? 
Yeah, I also want to make sure that you understand that Ed and I have known each other for over 30 years. Uh, I consider ourselves good friends. So mm-hmm. when I make these comments, it's not meant to be a criticism of Ed personally or of his practices. Uh, I want to make that clear. But when when we're talking about this, I think that that many building problems may be routine, obvious, and resolvable by building owners and managers. The problem is they haven't been resolved. So you're in a position where you're called in as a consultant to already state what is obvious. In many cases, that's what a consultant is used for, is to basically come into a building and state what already everybody already knows. Why are we doing why are we doing that? Because in many cases, for whatever reasons, and there may be complex reasons why it takes place, these problems haven't been resolved. So we are there as the as the I guess the uh, the outside of, uh, individual offering an expert opinion so that anybody else can see, oh yes, we really should solve this problem. It's, it, if it was if it was solved before we got there, we probably wouldn't be called. But since we are called, we come in and basically tell them what they already know, but they want to be told by an outsider to be able to say to everybody else, yes, we need to spend this money. We need to deal with the roof leak. We need to deal with the, uh, the problems with the, uh, the lack of ventilation. We need to deal with, with this issue and the other issue. So that's what I see in many cases as our role is, is doing that. I wish they were all solved out there because then I'd be out of business. But for the last 35 years, you know, I've, I've, I've managed to make a living off of people not necessarily resolving these problems. I think you'll be busy for some time to come there, Don. But uh, let's let's go to halftime, um, and then we're going to open things up for the second half. We've got some really interesting uh, halftime news here. But before we do, uh, let's make sure we thank our sponsors. Yes, we'd like to thank our association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends Enviro. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondonjohndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. We got the halftime whistle here. I didn't get the official halftime whistle, Austin. There we go. There go. All right. We got our football guy over there at the controls now. All right. Let's uh, move on with halftime. It's time to bring in our favorite halftime reporter here. I think we've got some intro music for Mr. Fellman. Oh, wait. That's Dieter. That's all right. We'll get, we got a rookie at the controls here. Let's go to Glenn Fellman's intro music. There we go. 
Glenn Feldman. Do we have you on the line? I'm here. I want to go back to the Mary Tyler Moore theme show. Okay. <laughs> You're not a Lou Grant fan, huh? Uh, that was good. Glenn, what's news? I understand we have some very interesting news today. Yeah, the, the industry has been a buzz this week. Uh, some really uh, interesting things are happening. And my headline for this show and the main topic for my news segment is U.S. Green Building Council sued for fraud over LEED. And before those acronym police come in, LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Let me tell you what's going on here. The United States Green Building Council and its founders have been named as defendants in a class action lawsuit filed in federal court last week. As reported on many websites, including buildinggreen.com, mechanical systems designer and outspoken lead critic Henry Gifford alleges in a lawsuit that the USGBC is fraudulently misleading consumers and fraudulently misrepresenting the energy efficiency performance of buildings certified under its lead rating system. Gifford, who owns New York City-based heating retrofit company Gifford Fuel Savings, also claims that lead is harming the environment by steering consumers away from proven energy-saving strategies. This has uh, been filed as a class action suit by an attorney by the name of Nora Hart. Um, this is a story that was actually, uh, we first reported uh, Gifford's concerns in September 2008 in Indoor Environment Connections after he had spoke at the Westford Symposium on Building Science in, in August 2008 and, and made uh, many of the claims that he's uh, laid forth in this lawsuit. To support his allegations, Gifford relies heavily on his critique of a 2008 study from the New Buildings Institute and USGBC. This was the most comprehensive look at the actual energy performance of buildings certified under LEED for new construction and major renovations, according to greenbuilding.com. While the NBI study makes the case that LEED buildings are, on average, 25 to 30 percent more efficient than the national average, Gifford's research concludes that they are actually, on average, 29% less efficient. Gifford's suit, filed according to the complaint on behalf of consumers, taxpayers, and building design and construction professionals, demands that the USGBC cease deceptive practices and pay $100 million in compensation to victims, in addition to legal fees. Under the Lanham Act, the suit repeats the same concerns in alleging deceptive marketing and unfair competition, and again goes for another $100 million. Uh, I've been looking over the blogs and, and, uh, and some of the legal um, circles and, and found some very interesting things. Um, you had to know this thing was coming, writes attorney and lead accredited professional Sherry Shapiro in her Green Building Law blog. She says, I even predicted a Lanham Act and Consumer Fraud Act claim would be part of a good green litigation. Uh, she uh, goes on, and uh, another another uh, fellow, uh, Steve Sachs, goes on to say that no doubt there's a valid lawsuit here, and I anticipate this lawsuit will grow if more members of the plaintiff's class sign on. And that seems to be a key uh, to this to this case here. It's a class action suit. It has to get certified as a class action suit, and other people have to join into it. There's five causes of action or, uh, that are named in the suit. The first cause of action is monopolization through fraud, which is allegedly a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. They're looking for $100 million on that. The second cause of action, unfair competition under the Lanham Act. Again, another $100 million there. 
third cause of action, deceptive trade practices under New York general business laws. And under that uh, cause of action, they're seeking uh, cease and desist order uh, plus uh, monetary damages. Fourth cause, false advertising under New York general business law. Again, seeking a cease and desist order against false claims and monetary damages. And the fifth, fifth cause of the complaint is unjust enrichment. And again, the suit is against USGBC and its founders, uh, who include uh, Richard Federizzi and David Gottfried, uh, Rob Watson, and a few other folks. Um, under that uh, item, it's of interest to note that according to publicly available records, uh, the founder and, uh, and president of USGBC, uh, Richard Federizzi, his salary was 285000 in, in 2006. It went up to 350000 in 207, and it was about a half a million in 2008. Now, half a million dollars may sound like a lot of money, and it certainly is, but for an association with a $60 million annual budget, uh, believe it or not, a half million dollars uh, in compensation to your top CEO is not unusual. In fact, it's uh, more or less the norm in the association world when you get to organizations that have multi-million dollar budgets. So that is the big story, and like I say, the, the, the lawyers are blogging left and right, the IQ industry is blogging left and right. If you go online, you do a, a Google News search for USGBC and Gifford, spelled G-I-F-F-O-R-D, you'll find all kinds of opinions and, and uh, different, different angles on this thing, but it's a story that's going to be around for a long, long time. I think we're going to be hearing about this for, for many, many months or years. Well, we're we're going to continue talking about this in in the second half. Here, we'll bring in on Doctor Wow in a moment. But um, before we do, I believe you had another, at least one more story you wanted to uh, present for our listeners. I do because it, it sort of ties into this first one. It's just uh, uh, coincidental, but uh, this is a release that came out also last week. The Federal Trade Commission is proposing revised green guides. And the FTC is seeking public comment on changes that would update guides and make them easier to use. Uh, they propose revisions to the guidance that would give uh, that it gives to marketers to help them avoid making misleading environmental claims. The proposed changes are designed to update the guides and make them easier for companies to understand and use. The green guides were first issued in 1992 to help marketers ensure that claims they are making are true and substantiated. The guides were revised in uh, most recently, not, it's been since 1998, if you can believe that. Hmm. Uh, the guidance uh, provides um, general principles that apply to all environmental marketing claims, uh, addresses how consumers are likely to interpret particular claims and how marketers can substantiate their claims, and how marketers can qualify their claims to avoid deceiving consumers. In the proposed revisions to the guide, uh, it cautions marketers not to make blanket general claims that a product is environmentally friendly or eco-friendly because of the FTC's uh, consumer perception study confirmed that such claims are likely to suggest the product has specific and far-reaching environmental benefits. Very few products, if any, have all the attributes consumers seem to perceive from such claims, uh, making them really impossible to substantiate. Uh, some things that I thought were particularly interesting, the proposed guide also cautions marketers not to use unqualified certifications or seals of approval that do not uh, specify the basis for the certification. The guides more prominently state that 
unqualified product certifications and seals of approval likely to constitute general environmental benefit claims um, and advise marketers that, that the qualifications they apply to certifications or seals should be clear, prominent, and specific. Um, just one other item I wanted to put in here that I thought was really interesting is that um, either because the FTC lacks a substantial basis to provide meaningful guidance or uh, because the FTC wants to avoid proposing guidance that duplicates rules or guidance from other agencies, the proposed guides do not address the use of the terms sustainable, <laughs> natural, and organic. So people are going to have to figure that stuff out on their own. You can look at these proposed uh, revisions to the Green Guides at the FTC website. It's ftc.gov, and do a search there for Green Guides. That's All right. it. All right, Glenn. Well, thanks for that. We're going to just open up. Uh, let's get Dr. Wow on the line first. Do you, maybe we do have some intro music for Dr. <laughs> Hello, Dieter. Yep. <laughs> One my good friend, Ludwig von Beethoven. <laughs> I love it every time I hear it. Good afternoon, Dieter. Well, what do you anyway, think? Uh, what do you think about this uh, green building stuff? Well, Joe, I read uh, the same document, uh, which is dated October 8th. Uh, and I didn't read it in detail, as um, we just heard. But I have kind of, I, mean, I, I, I know there may be fraud in there. But I was reading between the lines, and I translated from royal language to normal language. And I said that the bottom line seems to be here, that somebody says, if you use building materials with an R value, that's um, the insulation value of 20, that is better than 17. And when you do this and your attic is better uh, insulated, you should... Um, uh, get a, uh, uh, a, a less fuel consumption. They, they express this here in BTUs, British Thermal Units. And uh, uh, I have listened to that before. I think they cheated somewhere when they looked at averages and so on, which is uh, it's, uh, not the right thing to do. But it seems to me that these guarantees are almost like a guarantee of fuel mileage. You know, I bought a car, <laughs> and they said I get 20 miles in the city, and I get 18, that's yeah, a little bit lower, and I get uh, 39 miles on the highway, and I get 37 and a half. I, I don't quite understand it, um, and I don't understand how how they actually measured the difference between for and after. Now, that is a difficult one. I just installed a new furnace, which is 95% um, efficient, and I replaced it with one that was 70, uh, and 30, uh, 70 efficient and 35 years old. Now, yeah, I, can't, I can't really, and, and I was told that my, I have energy savings, Due to the higher efficiency, which I believe. Now I'm an engineer, and I could I know what a BTU is. It is going to be tough to to get a handle on that because you need the outside temperature, and uh, yeah, do I need more energy when it's ten below zero, or do I need uh, more energy when it is twenty below zero? 
This all comes in, but I think they cheated over here. There is no doubt in my mind about that. If I can, anyway, it's an interesting thing. I, uh, I don't. I think it's going to be around for a long time, but I don't think we are talking about a quarter of a billion dollars here in the final uh, thing. But they, you always sue for more than you have to need. Well, let's see uh, what uh, uh, the Glenn. Glenn we, go ahead. Go ahead, Glenn. Well, I was just going to say that the, the heart of the argument that Giffords made, and uh, and this is again comes out of the two, September 2008 article, was that yeah, I, I the, have it on my computer right in front of yeah, me. Yeah, the, the study compared the median, which mm-hmm. is you know the number separating the and there is a difference between the median and the, <laughs> well, it, the compared, it compared the median mean. from one data set to the mean of another data set. You can't yes. you can't do that. That's a meaningless comparison. And I think comparison. that's cheating. Yeah. Well, so let's that's, get that's the crux of it. Don, that I think is cheating, and that yeah, that is that is you know, using statistics <laughs> in your favor, very creatively. Anyway, another thing, and Don made that one. It is good. We heard of a, a toxic waste dump and a hazardous waste dump. Please, everybody, do me a favor. Favor when you have a dictionary, look up what toxic means and look up what hazard means. I made that. Uh, uh, I it was homework assignment for all my uh, students. All right. Uh, Don made also, I think, a very interesting point, and most people didn't quite, I don't want to say get it, but understand it or know what the implications are. To find the atopic person. Who is the person who will react? And this is the thing, I mean, we, we don't know who that is. I worked years ago for a huge chemical company, and we were trying to find atopic people that we could give them and put them into jobs where they were not exposed to something that we knew would harm a certain person and not the other. And we were, by the way, we were um, uh, uh, not successful in doing that. It's incredibly difficult to do that. And I shut up in a second. Congratulations, Andy. Andy must be the leader in our in our um, <laughs> trivia, trivia question. question. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, let's get and on. You can start a shop with IAQA hat, uh, um, uh, radio, um, uh, uh, baseball caps. There yeah. He's got all kinds uh, of stuff. All right, well, let's get Don back on the line. Don, do we have any commentary from you on this uh, USGBC lawsuit? Well, I think I think the only comment I have is that um, you know that the USGBC uh, in recent years. I'm not saying what how they got started, but in recent years has been working very closely with a number of other organizations, uh, ASHRAE being one, the American Institute of Architects, Building uh, Owners and Management Association, um, on a, a number of really, really good uh, best practices uh, for design, construction, and commissioning, like the Indoor Air Quality Guide that came out last year. Um, and that is an excellent publication. And also, they've been very much involved with the standard for the design of high-performance green buildings, uh, which came out with ASHRAE, uh, came out with ASHRAE as well. It's an ASHRAE ANSI USGBC uh, standard. So these these this particular organization may have started out in one direction. Maybe they were more emphasizing marketing than anything else. But they have been very much in in, in working towards and working with very respectable organizations now to improve the, uh, the, the indoor air quality as well as the, uh, 
energy efficiency of buildings. So although there may be very much merit to what, what uh, the suit has in terms of certain uh, items, the overall concept of a green building and indoor air quality improvement and dealing with energy savings is a very good concept and very powerful function. I agree, Don. Let me um, let me ask you: uh, Would ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, have been interested in working with the USGBC if they hadn't been so? wildly successful with their early marketing? No, they would not. I think that I remember having a conversation with some of the folks at an ASHRAE meeting in 2007 in Baltimore where they acknowledged the success that USGBC had and, and that that had a, a major impact on, on in, in terms of the way in which they approached the whole uh, indoor air quality guide and the standard for design of high-performance green buildings. Because they've had a, a great success in their marketing, the uh, the individuals that are associated with USGBC, including very, very talented and highly skilled individuals, have now uh, working to make this particular profession much more uh, science-based in terms of that. And they actually would not have worked with them if they hadn't been successful in that regard. Cliff? I want to repeat two things I've heard from others. Neither of these are my original thoughts. But, Joe, I don't know if you remember when we had Joe Stiebrecht oh, yeah. on, on the show and what he said about uh, lead buildings and green buildings. And at the time, I remember him saying that there was not a single lead or green building that used less energy than the building that it replaced. So I think that that's important. And if that's true, uh, it brings me to something that a a local radio host in Pittsburgh, a conservative guy named Jim Quinn says, that liberalism often achieves the opposite of the stated intent. And, you know, this may be a situation uh, that, you know, that, that proves this. I think they did it for good intentions, and in the end, they end up not achieving the stated intentions. But, and really, the fraud comes in is if they're manipulating the data to somehow confirm that they've uh, met these expectations. So. Okay. Let's, uh, Glenn? Be you, no, I have uh, Dieter? Go ahead, Dieter. Go ahead, Dieter. Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay, I thought you had a comment, Glenn. Did you have something, or or Don? I did. I did. I just, um, you know, I, I had I had spoken this morning with uh, an association attorney who um, has, has a lot of experience with these types of issues with association lawsuits, and I had asked him for his opinion. I just uh, I received it, and I, I'm not going to name the lawyer uh, because because of some things he says, but I may give you his name for a future show. But All right. he responded back to me, and he says. Uh, thanks, Glenn. The complaint is a piece of crap. The first cause of action, page 12, alleges monopolization through fraud in violation of Section 2 of the Sherman Act. When you read paragraphs 68 through 74 relating to this cause of action, there is no mention of monopolization and no mention of Section 2. There's a quote from Section 1 of the Sherman Act, but that section deals with price fixing, not monopolization. The judge will throw any trust charge unless they amend the complaint. And then he goes on to say, uh, my conclusion, I don't like the smell of what USGBC did, but the plaintiffs certainly are far from having a slam dunk, and the plaintiffs' lawyers are sloppy. Not only is the antitrust account poorly drafted, but you will note that there is a fourth clause of action beginning on page 18 of the complaint, and then a second fourth clause of action beginning on page 20. 
not impressive. That's coming from a uh, an attorney who's represented trade associations in lawsuits for about forty years. Now, didn't you tell me before that? of the same taste that I got when I read through it. And I said, wait a second, what is going on over here? And I certainly am not a lawyer, and uh, I work with a lot of them. And I think that is well put. I, I saw a couple of things that just didn't make sense to me. Now, Glenn, before the show, though, you did, I believe we mentioned or we discussed the fact that this this group of attorneys or this particular attorney who helped to <laughs> file this lawsuit is pretty well known within the class action world and has been apparently fairly successful within the class action world and wouldn't have taken the case be unless they felt it was a pretty decent case because it would be done on contingency. Am I accurate in that? Well, uh, not necessarily in the first part. I, I, I don't know the, the track record of, of Nora Hart, okay. uh, who's the attorney for the plaintiff. I don't know whether she's been successful in these types of cases or not. But I know she has represented um, class class action suits before. But you're right; class action suits almost always are on a contingency basis. So for for an attorney to take up a matter like this, they have to see merit in the case because in the end, it's the attorney uh, for the plaintiff who's going to walk away with the biggest reward. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? Don, anything you want to add before we uh, go to the roundup here? Um. Fine, thanks. Okay, Dieter, we okay? Uh, yeah, I, I am fine. Um, uh, uh, I, and uh, maybe Don wants to, yeah, he is the star today, so maybe he wants to add something towards the end, and I shut up. How about that? All right. Well, we're going to, um, let's see. Uh, I don't think we had just one comment from uh, one of the listeners, and I don't know if um, East North Carolina wanted to jump in here or not, but if so, now's your chance. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll meet you back there, and then uh, we will uh, move up to that comment real quick. Uh, I did have one comment from Guest 10 about time that the USGBC lead certification's true colors come out. Primarily energy-focused and usage reduction, not monitored, not good. I think uh, it should be interesting to follow this. I, I, I think the um, issues within the complaint are certainly issues that have been expressed by a lot of very respected people within the industry. It'll be interesting to see how the lawsuit goes through the courts and whether it gets certified as class action or not. And we'll keep you up to date on that here at IAQ Radio. Let's go to the roundup real quick. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Okay, we're running short on time, so we're going to just cut it to uh, two questions. I've got one, Cliff's got one, and uh, we're going to uh, go with these two. But before we do, I do want to point out that um, the show we did before with Ed Light, Ed made a a couple comments about lead points and that, um, you know, lead points are trying to reduce off-gassing emissions from chemical products that have been reduced, that have already been reduced by building products manufacturers. Chemical emissions in new buildings are better than ever. 
Lead pushes introduction of more fresh air into buildings. More fresh air brings with it consequences, more moisture, and more energy consumption. And he also stated that, uh, and this is according to Cliff's uh, notes, lead points reward chemophobia, green cleaning with natural products, and a reduction in the use of antimicrobials. So I just wanted to bring that up and uh, get that on the record for you, Cliff. And then I want to ask a question of you, Don. On the show that we had with Ed, he commented that IEQ Radio covers building science and the restoration fields well, but he was critical of our IAQ coverage. He felt the show isn't adequately balanced, and it predominantly featured guests who advocate an IAQ causes health effects storyline. Um, you know, and we've been looking in the mirror, and we've been trying to make sure that we present both sides of things. I'm just curious, how do you feel about that, and what kind of comments do you have on, on how we've handled this aspect of the show? Well, I, I think you guys are doing the best you can. I mean, uh, certainly uh, viewpoints are, are, are difficult to know in advance on, on all guests that you might have. You're, you're taking the prominent members of the of the uh, IQ community and asking them, uh, you know, uh, what I would consider in most cases uh, leading or, or neutral questions in the sense that you're saying, well, what do you think about this? If they offer opinions that tend to be on one side of the issue as opposed to another, that's not necessarily the fault of the host. That may be the fault of the industry, but you certainly can, you know, look at other. And we, you and I have talked about some other folks that might be interested in, in expressing viewpoints. But I, you know, I look at it like people do it like 60 minutes. I mean, people have always said well, 60 minutes has a liberal bias. Well, I think it's that it's not necessarily the the the, uh, the hosts that are at, at fault in that regard. It's the fact that the individuals answering the questions may not necessarily answer them the same way they, the individuals who are listening for bias would like them to answer it. So I'm not blaming you guys. You know, I just think that maybe, you know, diversity of guests, try and, uh, and get these individuals that have a diversity of opinions, come on on. And I think you guys do the best you can with that. We're trying like heck. In fact, we uh, have a guest next week or two. Uh, David Governor will be back. Uh, defense attorney essentially for building owners and um, he's also going to bring on Dr. Howard Sandler who uh, apparently is also pretty active in helping to defend against uh, lawsuits that uh, may you know uh, be claiming to have health effects from indoor air quality issues and others and in fact when I was looking over Dr. Sandler's information I realized we'd had Jack Springston on the show who was a part of uh, Dr. Sandler's group so we're trying like heck, Don, but before we go, Cliff has one final question. I, I do, for Bulletproof Don Weeks. Uh, it's actually two questions. One, okay. uh, is there anything that we forgot to ask you or any final comment that you would like to, to make before we close out the show? Well, Chris, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't promote uh, that today is the last day for submittal of abstracts for Indoor Air Quality, Indoor Air 2011. Uh, in Austin, Texas, um, we already have 1,066 uh, excellent papers out there from all over the world. There's over over 50 nations uh, that are represented in the in the uh, in the group that have submitted. But if you have something that is, that you want to submit, uh, please do so before midnight tonight. Also, just so that people know, if you have a forum or a roundtable that you want to submit, you have up until December 1st to do so. So. Even if you missed the deadline tonight, you still have uh, an opportunity to come down down to Austin and, and participate in what will be the largest indoor air quality uh, conference uh, of this type uh, that has ever taken place. 
Okay, I guess the second part of my question is, Don, would you mind giving our audience your contact information? Yeah, it's uh, the best would be, of course, email, which would be uh, don.weeks, W-E-E-K-E-S, at in air, I-N-A-I-R, environmental, that's all one word, dot C-A. Got to remember that dot C-A, folks. <laughs> It'll mess you up every time. Well, first, uh, I want to thank this week's uh, guest, Don Weeks. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you back and look forward to talking to you maybe just before or after Indoor Air 2011. Uh, I also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Glenn Fellman with IE Connections What's News, of course my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's always fun, Joe. The lovely Dottie Hughes sitting in the background here, being quiet in the studio. Thank you, dear. And of course, Austin Powers Novak at the controls, but most importantly, all of you out there in radio land or computer land, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. We really appreciate when you come in. Keep those downloads pumping out there. They're looking great. And join us again next week at Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.